Welcome to Shekinah International Podcast. Our ministry reflects the five-fold ministry model Apostle Paul mentions in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. Our podcast features leaders from multiple churches who are passionate about equipping Christians just like you to walk in purity and power, fulfilling your God-given purpose. God wants to do great exploits through you, so enjoy today's podcast. Thank you. God bless you, everybody. So, let's see if we can, okay. Okay, so this is, uh, first we're going to talk about Rosh Hashanah, and then we're going to talk about Yom Kippur. And both of these holidays are listed among the eight holidays of God in Leviticus 23. The first holiday is Shabbat, and some of these days are all like Shabbats through the year. So, so anyway, um, whoops, what am I doing? I think I'm lost here. Okay. Okay. So these are the holidays of God, and we looked at this in the spring with Passover. And if you look at these holidays of God, the first four, it says that they're associated with Jesus' first coming, and the last three with his last coming. And if you look at the bottom, uh, it says the church. And so the first coming had to do with, um, well, We'll just go through them holiday by holiday. And Passover, of course, we know that Jesus became the Passover lamb. When he became the Passover lamb, then it reminds us of the first Passover when the children of Israel slayed the perfect lamb, you know, each family. And then with hyssop, they um, painted the blood of the lamb over the doorposts and the lintel of the door. And when they did that, then the spirit of death, you know, that punishment, the death of the firstborn was not able to enter into their houses. And um, this is very important because uh, we as believers, we paint the blood of Jesus on the doorposts and the lintels of our own heart. You know, we're not subject to, um, to the punishments of God or the punishments to our sins if we're in Christ. The second holiday, the Feast of, of um, Unleavened Bread, has to do with sanctification. Because, um, you know, in the Bible, I mean, uh, leaven represents sin, and unleavened bread is, is bread without that leaven in it. So it's the way that we sanctify our lives. Now, the, now, Passover is always on the 14th of Nisan, and the Feast of First Fruits is on the 16th of Nisan. That's why we have um, Good Friday and Easter Sunday, which we don't call Easter Sunday. We'll call it Resurrection Sunday because we know that there was a certain goddess named Ishtar. Okay. So, anyway... So the Feast of First Fruits 
It's always the same, you know, same, same time on the Hebrew calendar. And we know that Jesus was the first fruit because he was crucified and he was resurrected. He was, was the first to be resurrected. And I want to tell you that we were all crucified with Christ and risen with him to newness of life. So he was the first fruit, and we are fruits that come after Jesus. So seven weeks later from the Feast of First Fruits is, um, in Hebrew, it's called Shavuot, which means weeks. And in, in, um, in the church, we say Pentecost. And um, there's the counting of the Omar, you know, 49 days, seven sevens, seven weeks. And on that day, in the biblical calendar, Moses received the Ten Commandments from the Lord on that 50th day. On the very same day in our calendar, in the Christian calendar, uh, we received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was given to us as promised by Jesus and promises made, promises kept. Then came, then comes the summer months. And these summer months are the age of the Gentiles. So Jesus had come to give us a way out. Uh, it was a time of sanctification. He became the first fruit, and then the Holy Spirit was given. And then the long summer months are the months in which this, the gospel has been spread around the world. And the reason that the gospel has been spread from 11 disciples to hundreds of millions is because that good news is so very good, so good enough that, that uh, men and women have been willing to risk their lives They've been willing to be missionaries. They've been willing to um, put their own uh, um, reputation on, on the stake in order to live for Jesus. Okay, and, um, and then when we come to the fall, the fall months are all about um, the salvation of the Jews and the salvation through the Jews. So... In uh, Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, it talks about, you know, it's the Olivet Discourse. The end of the very last verse of Matthew 23 is when Jesus says, you will not see me again until you can say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Before the salvation of the Jews, before the tribulation comes the rapture of the church. And so the rapture of the church is just before the um, the fall holidays on this uh, on this great um, you know sweep of history that God has given to us. Whoops, wrong way. <laughs> okay, Rosh Hashanah. Okay, the four names of Rosh Hashanah: the day of the shofar blast, the day of judgment, the head of the year and the day of remembrance. Of course, um, well, let's read on and then we'll fill in. Rosh Hashanah literally means the head of the year. That's what it means. In Hebrew, one's Rosh is one's head, and Shana means year. It's the head of the year. 
The holiday is also called Yom Trua, meaning the Feast of, of Trumpets, or literally the day of shouting and blasting. I like that shout. <laughs> so um, the reason, well, okay. So the head of the year, so probably it was selected originally because um, it was right after the harvest um, in Israel, and of course they were working. And when they got when they got done with with all that harvesting, all that labor, of course, you know they would store it in the barns. They would be glad, and so what a wonderful time to start a year, a new year. This whole idea of the day of remembrance, it's because Rosh Hashanah is a solemn holiday. The day of remembrance, remembering all that we've done wrong through the year, and the day of judgment, remembering that God will judge us for the things that we've done wrong. And so it ushers in the days of all because um, it's frightening to imagine how God might punish me punish us because he is a God of justice. Rosh Hashanah starts in the seventh month. And why the seventh month? Why would the head of the year start in the seventh month? It's because in Exodus 12, verse 2, um, God commanded another holiday. It was um, the holiday of, of um, Passover. And he says, this shall be for you the first month. And so suddenly the first month became the seventh month, and yet it's still both both beginnings of the year are are you know observed to this day. Sixteen hundred years. So the purpose and practice of Rosh Hashanah is to shout at or to awaken the sleepy souls of the children of Israel you know, to their selfish and sinful ways. I mean, we conduct our business. We don't even think about God. And, and Rosh Hashanah and the days of awe that follow is a time of recognizing how we have fallen short of God's standards of righteousness and to repent from the sins that we have committed in the past year. But God is a God who remembers, I mean, he, I'm, you know, God is a God who's remembering these things, and, and God is sovereign, and I'm speaking from the Jewish point of view. So I want to read to you the most uh, famous prayer at Rosh Hashanah called Ansana Tokef, and see if this will scare the bejeebers out of you. <laughs> it says, all mankind will pass before you like a flock, like a shepherd pasturing his flock, making the sheep to pass under his staff so that you cause to pass, to count, to count, and to calculate, excuse me, and to consider the soul of the living, and you shall apportion the destinies of the creatures and and inscribe their verdict. On Rosh Hashanah, and this is all a prayer in Hebrew, on Rosh Hashanah will be inscribed and on Yom Kippur sealed. How many will pass from the earth and how many will be created? Who will live and who will die? 
who will live a long life and who before his time, who by water and who by fire, who by sword and who by beast, who by famine and who by thirst, and who by upheaval and who by plague and who by strangling and who by stoning, who will rest and who will wander, who will live in harmony and who will be harried, who will enjoy tranquility and who will suffer and who will be impoverished and who will be enriched and who will be degraded and who will be exalted. That God would do all that, judging us. But repentance and prayer and charity annul the severity of the decree. So that's how we live. We, it says, for your name signifies your praise. It's hard to anger your praise, hard to anger and easy to appease. For you do not with, wish the death of one deserving death, but that he repent from his ways and live. Until the day of his death, you await him. If he repents, then you will accept him immediately. And it is true that you are their creator and you know their inclination, for they were are flesh and blood. A man's origin is from dust and his destiny is back to dust. At risk of his life, he earns his bread. He's likened to a a broken shard, withering grass, fading flower, a passing shade, a dissipating cloud, a blowing wind, flying dust in a fleeting dream. And this, you know, this kind of reminds me of um, of Jesus speaking in Matthew seven. He told us that that um, that um, you know about about the uh, the grass that withers and the and the flowers that wilt, you know, and yet they're uh, dressed more uh, beautifully, you know, than even Solomon in all of his glory. This is another prayer relating to Rosh Hashanah. It's, um, here, <laughs> just a moment. It's hard to see. But anyway, um, this is prayer relating, it's Micah 7, verses 18 and 19. Who is a God like you who pardons sin? He forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. He forgives us. You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. Our God is a merciful God. You will again have compassion upon us, you will tread our sins underfoot, and you will hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Now, there's a um, another tradition in Rosh Hashanah called Tachlit. And you cast your bread upon the water. You look for a stream that's going downhill, and you have a piece of bread in your hand. Of course, bread, you know, has you know, got the leaven in it. And you throw your bread onto the river, you know, and the, and the people of the synagogue would go to the river, they would do this, and they would watch it being carried away just as car God carries away our sins and covers us with his righteousness. So in the church, I have to say this because I don't want to make, make everybody a legalist. Some people are worried about that, but I'm not really. 
It says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, then he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, God makes it easy to wash away our sins if we'll only come to him. I'm, I'm reminded that in the, in the time of Adam and Eve, you know, when God says, where are you, where are you, why are you hiding, what has happened? And instead of Adam saying, Lord, we've, we've failed, and instead of coming to God and saying, Lord, God, cleanse me of our sins, cleanse us of our sins, they hid themselves, and that's not what God wanted. And that's not God what wants from us. He wants us to come to him and say, Lord, God, only you can wash me from my sins. And if you wash me, I'm clean indeed. In 1 Corinthians 5, I love 1 Corinthians. Because in 1 John chapter 4, verses 8 and 16, it tells us that God is love. It's not that God, something that God tries to do. It's not something that God does on a good day. God is love. He's, he's love itself. And so this chapter of 1 Corinthians 13 can tell us a lot about the character of God. And it says that love does not dishonor others, which means that God is not looking down upon us. He's not angry at us. He's not mad at us. Instead, he values us. It says that love is not self-seeking. So why does God want praise from us? You know, it's not because it makes him feel good, I don't think. It's because he knows that that's where we find, um, you know, our deepest meaning in life. I mean, that's what we're made for. We're vehicles of worship and praise on this earth. And when we praise God, then we're at our best. Also, love is not easily angered. You know, there's a reason why patience is part of the fruit of the Spirit. And that's because it comes from the vine itself. It comes from um, the vine into the branches. But God is patient. And that's why we are able to become patient as we uh, remain connected to the vine. And also, boy, I guess I'm slow here. Oh, no. <laughs> okay, sorry. Okay, also, um, love keeps no record of wrongs. God is not keeping a record of our wrongs. You know, um, many of us think and many of us are sometimes told that we're going to get to heaven someday. And, uh, okay, so we've st stored treasures in heaven, and they haven't burnt up because they're not wood, hay, and stubble. You know, they were done with a good motive. They were done, you know, in obedience to the Holy Spirit. But that somehow God will dump on us and show us everything that we did wrong. And it's not true because love keeps no record of wrongs. God is able to forgive our sins, and he's also able to forget our sins. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 21, it says, 
Therefore, if anyone in Christ is a new creation, the old has passed, behold, the new has come. What is the new that has come? It's our spirit. Because our spirits became corrupted when Adam and Eve ate from the tree. But with Jesus, when Jesus became sin on our behalf, we became the righteousness of God. And uh, the old has gone, and the new has come, and we were crucified with Christ, but we were resurrected. He became sin that we might become his righteousness. Okay. So these are two priests blowing two silver trumpets. And this is important because um, while some Christians believe that, that when, you know, on the day of, of Rosh Hashanah, you know, the church goes up, there are two silver trumpets. One of them represents the church and one of them represents Israel. The Lord said in Numbers 10, he said, um, make two trumpets of hammered silver, use them for the calling, for calling the community together and for having camps set out. He said, when both are sounded, the whole community is to assemble before you at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And if only one is sounded, then the leaders, the heads of the clans are to assemble. When the, trump, when the trumpet, sorry, Last is sounded, then the tribes camping on the east are to set out. At the sounding of the second blast, the camps on the south are to set out. And the blast will be a signal for setting out. This is in Numbers 10, 2 through 6. And I believe that the Christians are raptured with the first sound of the trumpet. And the Jews are awakened to their sin at the second sound of the trumpet. And the first sound of the trumpet is described in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. It says, this is what it says. It says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a, with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. So God has a trumpet. And the dead in Christ will be the first to rise and after that, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Now, people often say, just a second. Okay, well, anyway, uh, people always say, what is this, what is this caught up? What is this caught up together in the clouds? And, and why isn't uh, the word rapture in the Bible anywhere? <laughs> and we know that the word caught up is an English translation of the Greek word herpazo. And we know that in the Latin Vulgate, the word is raptura, from which we get the word rapture. So now it's time for Stephanie to blow the shofar.
Okay, so that's the first trumpet. And it, as I open my eyes, I see, whoops, we're not all raptured yet. <laughs> but that's because the Lord himself will descend with a loud voice and the, and the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. Okay. So now we're going to talk about the second trumpet. This is in Matthew 24, verses 30 and 31. And it says, at that time, the, son of, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. This is very important. All the tribes will mourn. They will see the Son of God coming in the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. I want to tell you that this is in the tribulation. So what's happened is that, you know, there was the, um, the building of the temple in the three and a half years, and then Satan is, I mean, the Antichrist enters, you know, and he calls himself the Messiah. And there's all these punishments, all these judgments from God, the four horses and the bold judgments and, and all the judgments. And uh, the nations of the world are coming against Israel, and they say, oh, my gosh, what can we do? What can we do? We, I mean, it's, it's enough to fight Jordan or Egypt or something, but how are we going to defend ourselves from the whole world? And then suddenly, what happens? God himself is the defender of Israel. God himself destroys the enemy. God himself exalts himself. And then they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory, and he sends out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather the elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. When Jesus came, he came in a man suit. You know, he did do all these miracles, you know, he did have the wisdom of God, and yet um, he wasn't doing everything the way that the Pharisees thought. There he was, you know, not doing everything right on the Sabbath and not washing his hands and not doing this and that. And they chose to ignore him. But imagine all this is which happens in the tribulation. This is not, this is not something that the, all the laws of the Pharisees is going to be standing up to. Everyone will see it. Everyone will see the Son of Glory. So I want Stephanie to blow the shofar again. Of course, the salvation of the Jewish people is recorded in Zechariah 12.10. It says... Then I will pour out on the house of David and the people of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and prayer or supplication, and they will look upon me, the one that they have pierced, and they'll mourn for him as one mourns for an early only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for firstborn son. This is when Israel, all Israel, all Israel that, that remains, that survives, is cleansed. But look at this. Not only did Jesus appear 
Not only did God save Israel, not only did he do great and mighty works that, that dwarfed anything that happened with Egypt, but also he sent out that spirit of grace and supplication. When they see with their eyes and they sense with their heart and God changes their heart, is it any wonder that all Israel will be saved at that point? Romans eleven twenty five to 27, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you will not be conceited. A hardening in, in part has come to Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. It's the age of the Gentiles. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove godlessness from Jacob and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now we're going to talk about Yom Kippur. Look at the balance beam of Yom Kippur. Imagine that the, that the one on the left are all the good deeds that we've done through the year. And that the one on the right are all the bad deeds. And those bad deeds are pretty heavy and they're outweighing the good deeds. Scary time. It's commanded in Leviticus 23. It's a day when the Jewish people are washed from their sins. I'm not denying Jesus. I'm just saying that this is the Jew in the Jewish calendar. And the Jews who died just before Yom Kippur are still laden with all those sins. And it's considered a bad omen to die just before Yom Kippur. But if you could only die after Yom Kippur, then you're free of all those sins. They've all been washed away. The balance beam, suddenly all the weight of the bad deeds are gone. And the, white and the good deeds... And they just kind of flop to the floor, you know, because, um, so anyway. Um, this is a picture, or not a picture, but this is a drawing <laughs> of, um, of the high priest in front of the Holy of Holies at the time of Jesus, you know, in the temple days. And I want to read to you how Yom Kippur was practiced, because I have a book that talks about Yom Kippur in the temple days. So I'll just read to you these points. The high priest, first of all, was wearing a golden robe. And each of the seven days before the Yom Kippur, he would offer the daily sacrifice. He would sprinkle the blood on the altar. He would burn the sacrifice. He would light the menorah and he would recite the Torah, seven days, seven days to rehearse, really. In preparation for Yom Kippur, they would select the perfect lamb and a perfect goat, and they couldn't have any blemish, just kind of reminds you of Jesus, no blemish. And even the wood to burn them had to be perfect. They would look for the uh, wormwood, and if they found anything, you know, they would get new wood. And the scribes and the priests, the experts of the law, 
would carefully train the high priest who would practice again and again and again until he got everything right and no, no detail was missed. And then on Yom Kippur Day, believe it or not, there were mikvahs. You know, he would wash his body. And he did this five times. And also on that day, he would wash his feet and his hands ten times to be ritually pure. There was a lamb dedicated to Yahweh, and the goat was, was dedicated to Azazel. So what was Azazel? It was a demon or an evil spirit to whom a scapegoat was sent bearing the sins of the Jewish people. They would put the sins on this goat. I just want to show you this. Here's the priest. Here's the goat. And the high priest would tie a red sash around its horns, and the priest would proclaim all the sins of the nation upon it. And the goat would then be sent off into the wilderness far, far away from the people. And this book I have, you know, they didn't have motors back then. So it was 10, 10 miles to a cliff. And the priest would sacrifice the bull. That's the next thing he did. Collecting its blood, he would, he, um, you know, he would use it in the Holy of Holies. So the priest entered the Holy of Holies four different times. The first time was to bring in incense, which filled the room. Of course, this harkens back to when the Holy Spirit filled the temple when it was first dedicated by King Solomon. After that, when he would emerge from the Holy of Holies, the people would shout in relief, that he came so close to God, and yet he did not die. He must have been richly clean, because coming so close to God, he did not die. And some have said that they used to tie a rope around the ankles of the high priest. It, what if he did die in there? Then they would have a rope, and they could drag him out of the Holy of Holies without having to go in. So the second time he went in, they would slay a bull. They would take the blood. He would go in, and he would sprinkle the blood of the bull on the mercy seat, come out. The third time, he would take the blood of the lamb, that perfect lamb. He'd go in there. He would sprinkle blood on the you know, on the mercy seat, he would come out and he would also sprinkle some on the altar so that everyone could see. And the last time the priest went in, the high priest, he would go in to, to bring back out the incense pan and the ladle. Finally, the priest would stand up before all the people and proclaim, you shall be clean. <laughs> they, no more sins. It was all gone. They were all clean. And the people would rejoice. They would rejoice because they were clean, and they were all rejoicing because they were all fasting, and they thought, wow, now we can eat. 
So when, when this was, um, they also understood that, you know, the holiday that comes right after that, a few days after that, is um, the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a, um, a holiday for rejoicing. So what about the scapegoat? I want to tell you about the scapegoat. The scapegoat was sent away all of, you know, with that red sash around its horns. And what happened was that this, the scarlet would be turned white. And it was the sign, it was a supernatural sign that God had received the sacrifice, that the people were free from their sins. You know, it was good news. And David wrote in Psalm 51 that though my sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. That he didn't wash away his own sins. God washed away his sins. And, and though they were as scarlet, they became white as snow. That's what God does for us. That's pure righteousness. So there's a very interesting notation in the Talmud about the scarlet sash. And this did not come from Christian sources. This came from the rabbis. The rabbis taught that 40 years before the destruction of the temple, that was in 30 AD, the same year that Jesus was crucified in the spring, and here we come to Yom Kippur in the fall. And... Um, and then, and they noticed that the high priest's right hand, or that the um, lot did not come up in the high priest's right hand, nor did the tongue of scarlet wool become white. And this is in the Talmud in Tractate Yoma in 39b. So now we have the question, what did the Jewish people do after the temple was torn down? I mean, every year... It was this lamb that was to cleanse their sins, and they weren't believing in Jesus. What did they do? Well, the temple service was replaced by, you guessed it, a liturgical <laughs> service. Words. It was replaced by words in the synagogue. And there was no longer the shedding of blood, but rather a verbal description of it, like the one that I gave above. It's hard to see this, but maybe you can. So the question is, is merely observing Yom Kippur in a synagogue enough for God? I mean, is, does this really cleanse from sins, observing it? Well, this was their answer. First of all, they had no choice because there was no temple. And in the Talmud, the story is told, is told of Rabban Johanna ben Zeke, together with his pupil, Rabbi Joshua, who once stood gazing at the ruins of the temple, and Rabbi Joshua said, Woe to us that the place where the Jews were forgiven for their sins is destroyed. To which Rabbi Johanna answered, My son, regret it not. We have another medium, just as good for the forgiveness of sins, and it is to do good to mankind, for it is written, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So we substitute here the blood sacrifice for good deeds. And the word for good deed is mitzvah, 
And Jewish people, especially the Orthodox, are always trying to do mitzvahs, you know. A bar mitzvah is the son of, of good deeds. A bat mitzvah is the daughter of good deeds. You know, the greatest thing you can do is you can spend your days studying the Torah and studying the Talmud, you know, and, um, and while you're doing that, it's impossible to sin, and, and then you get out and you try to implement and you try... But, you know, what did God tell us in um, Romans 3? He says that God's righteousness is his filthy rags, you know. And so it's been ever since. Obedience to Mosaic laws and ordinances together with the sin offerings and the burnt offerings has been replaced by the study and the practice of good deeds, mitzvahs. Still, yet, however, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. Um, Leviticus 17, 11, and Hebrews 9, 22, both state that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. You know how our sins are remitted? It's the blood of Jesus. Anyway, I wanted to tell you about the numbers. I mean, every Christian should know this because it's one of the most powerful affirmations that Jesus, Jesus was the Messiah. And so everybody's got to know this. And um, in Daniel 9.25, it says, you know, it's saying that, um, that I forgot, um, I think it's, Anyway, it says, you know, 69 weeks of years would occur between the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince. If you take those 69 weeks of years and multiply them by seven, it's 483 years. If you take the day, I mean, the year that Cyrus the Great, you know, was, spoke with Nehemiah, and Nehemiah said, Lord, what can I do? I mean, how can I be happy when my city is destroyed? And, and Cyrus gave the order to rebuild Jerusalem. And then you add 483 years to that, you, get to, you come to 27 AD. And in 27 AD, the Messiah of peace... Uh, the prince emerges because he enters into his priesthood. And in Luke 4, 18 and 19, it says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is very important because there's been a lot of imposter messiahs through the years. And I think 130 AD, there was one called Bar Kokhba. He and a rabbi called Rabbi Akiva revolted against Rome. And they, and, and they said, this, surely this is the messiah. This is the messiah. He's going to free Israel from foreign rule. And... Um, he lost. I mean, he lost his life. You know, the rebellion was crushed. And, um, and he shouldn't have been believed because he wasn't proclaimed Messiah in 27 AD. 
you know, it was much later. And then later, there was another, um, another rabbi called Sabbatai Levi around 1800. And this Sabbatai Levi said, I'm the Messiah. And there were thousands and thousands of Jewish people. And they said, ah, we found the Messiah. We found the Messiah. Well, in the end, um, the Muslims put pressure upon him, and they threatened him with death, and then he converted to Islam. And then people said, ah, that can't be the Messiah. But how could it be the Messiah? After all, he was proclaimed Messiah, and it wasn't 27 AD. It was 1800. And then in 1995, there was a, a great man named um, Rabbi Menachem Schneerson. He was the head of the Lubavitcher, which is a uh, ultra-Orthodox sect. And um, his, his disciples were so convinced that he must be the Messiah that when he died in 1995, they stood around his body for three days because they knew that he would be resurrected from the dead. Well, he wasn't resurrected from the dead. And that was 1995. It wasn't 27 AD. So Jesus died in 30 AD. He died in 30 AD, and the sash stopped turning white. And the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, 40 days later. And we know that 40 is a is a, um, a number in the Bible for testing and tribulation. Because in the days of Noah, it rained 40 days and 40 nights. In the days of Moses, the children of Israel had to wander the desert for 40 years. In the days of David, Goliath taunted. He uh, ridiculed, he slandered Israel and Israel's God until David slew him on that 40th day. And we know that Jesus fasted for 40 days. He was tempted. He did not give in to the temptation, but it was 40 days. And here's the sacrifice. You know, the, the temple destroyed 40 days after Jesus' atonement. So not too much more here. <laughs> um, we're going to talk about sin and righteousness. So I have a robe. See my pretty robe? It's white, mostly white. And my question for you is, what about our sins? Now, I always thought, well, I've got lots of sins, so I better cover up as quickly as possible. Nobody can see them, but they're still there. Is that the way that God does it? In, in Psalm 51, verse 7, it says, you know, David wrote, David wrote, excuse me, purify me with hyssop and I will be clean and wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Again, hyssop is the Holy Spirit. And we're washed really by the blood of the lamb and we're made whiter than snow. So, okay, so maybe I have a robe and maybe I'm clean. But then in Romans 8.1, it says, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why are we not condemned? 
It's because we're no longer sinners. We're the righteousness of God in him. God doesn't see our sins. He forgets them. It's not that he wants us to sin, of course. He wants us to be sanctified, to be separated to him and to his purposes. But there's no condemnation for us because when God looks at our spirit, he says, ah, as beautiful as the spirit of Jesus, and he's satisfied. So what are our robes? I want to read to you this. I mean, what are our robes? What is this robe of righteousness, you know, we hear about? And I believe that it's defined in Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8. It says, sorry, it says, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Well, you know, in Ephesians 2, it says that we're saved by grace through faith, and it also tells us that we're saved for good works, not by our works, but for good works. So as we hear as we sanctify ourselves, separate ourselves unto God, as we hear his voice, as we walk in faith, as we um, seek to, to um, be like Jesus and testify of, of our Savior and Lord, then those are the kinds of fine linen that God wraps us with. Now, in contrast to this is the church in Laodicea. In, in uh, Revelation 3, verses 14 to 18, to the church of the, to the angel of church in Laodicea write, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I say to you, buy from me gold, refined in the fire so that you can become rich. Even to the church of Laodicea, God is extending the hand of mercy so that you can become rich and that you can have white clothes to wear and that you can cover your shameful nakedness and put salve on your eyes so that you can see. Well, I believe that that if, um, if we think that we're the object, we can do it in and of ourselves. That doesn't, God doesn't care what we put on. He just says, poor, blind, and naked. But as we come to him, then we can, have, we can have these white clothes. But also, you know, when I see put salve on your eyes so that you can see, this reminds me of um, Matthew 7. When Jesus was saying, you know, if your eyes be dark, how great is that darkness? Or if Ephesians 1, when, when uh, Paul is praying that the eyes of our hearts be open, that's what I think it means. So now we're, I want to tell you about forgiveness. And um, this is very meaningful to me because... Um, 
You know, I, you know, I used, to, I would think of myself as usually easygoing, you know, type B. <laughs> but anyway, there were certain people, certain people that I was bitter against. I thought, wow, you know, I'm not making it as far in life as I should, and I would blame certain people. And, um, and I was bitter, and I knew that, you know, I knew about the Lord's Prayer, forgive them their sins as you forgive me mine, you know, this kind of thing. And I thought, why can't I forgive these people? And I realized that I had made them into scapegoats. I blamed them for each and every problem of my life. And when I would blame them, then they became darker and darker and more and more evil. And I realized that you cannot forgive Satan. I mean, Satan himself has come to kill, steal, and destroy. He'll destroy us any way he can. And if we, you know, if I scapegoat somebody with every possible accusation, then I make them like Satan. And it occurred to me finally that if I, if I, Pull off those accusations like you would an onion skin from an onion. And if I say, no, they're not really responsible for this or this or that, and I do that, then I see a person who is vulnerable because we're all of dust, you know. And I would understand that, you know, that lots of things can enter into a bad decision and uh, and th that I myself, if I had, had walked in their shoes, if I had experienced what they experienced, I could make exactly the same decisions. And finally, I could forgive them and also forgive myself. And when I did that with the first one, I thought, wow, you know, there's something, there's some weight that's lifted from me that I could forgive this person. And so I went to all the people that I was bitter against, and I did the same process and got the same results. So I just want to tell you that. Again, this is hard to see, but um, I believe that there's three categories of mankind. Now, you know, when we, when we separate men, you know, for people, you know, some would say, well, there's Americans and then there's the foreigners. Or some would say that there's men and women, or the rich and the poor, or the digitally, um, you, know, uh, you know, sophisticated and those who are not. Or maybe would say the rich and the poor or whatever. You know, we, we create all kinds of divisions. But I believe that in God's case, he has three things in mind. There's three divisions of mankind. I believe that there's a, um, a, big, whoops, a big circle, and then there's another circle inside, and then there's a much smaller circle even in that one. I believe that the, f the big circle is those whom God loves. In John 3.16, it says that God so loved the world, means that God doesn't hate anybody. In fact, God has no, I mean, he would have all to be saved, and he takes no delight in the death of the wicked. God would have anybody to repent because he loves them. So I believe that's the big circle. 
But within that circle, there's another category, and I believe that that's those of us who are born again, those who've been made righteous, those who are new creatures and, and are now the righteousness of God in him. Not only does God love us, but we're righteous in his eyes. But I believe that inside of that, there's even a smaller circle. And I believe that that's in Isaiah 66, verse 2, that who does God esteem but he who is humble, contrite of heart, and who trembles at his word? To me, being humble means basically to believe God. I know some people, you know, and they say, well... According to this atheist author, while well, the, the Bible has these, these uh, faults, you know, I mean, I mean, surely all the animals couldn't live in the ark. And surely God is not a good God because he, you know, he smited the Canaanites. And surely, you know, and they tear out this and they tear out that. And, and they, um, you know, they believe that somehow they can judge God as opposed to God judging them. If you think you can judge God, then that makes you arrogant. But if you believe that God judges you, then maybe it's just a good idea to humble ourselves before him. And also it says, those who are contrite of heart. I believe that be contrite of heart means that God, we give God permission to write his word in our heart. And I'm reminded of... Um, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, first of all, you know, that we sacrifice our body as living sacrifices. And number two, that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. How are we transformed by the renewing of our mind? It's because we read his word. We take it as truth. You know, we allow God to write his word in our hearts. And finally... It says, and those who tremble at his word. What does it mean to tremble at his word? As we read his word verse by verse, and we said, if God says it, it must be true. And if God's word must be true, and if he watches over his word to perform it, then we can totally, completely trust in this word of God. If we're so positioned, if this is the way that we live our lives, then I believe that it's a short road to Mark 11, verses 22 to 24. Jesus, having just rebuked the fig tree and it withered, and the disciples said, wow. And Jesus said, have faith in God. Jesus answered, truly I tell it to you, if anyone says in, to this mountain, Throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And I believe that if we have learned to humble ourselves before God, to have him write our words in our heart, to tremble before those words, knowing that God cannot lie and that he backs up every single word, then when we pray in the name of Jesus, when we believe, then our prayers will be answered. And another thing I want to say is when we talk about mountain, I used to think a big, big pile of dirt and rock. But I want to tell you that 
Lots of have, us have different kinds of mountains. For some of us, it's financial need. For some of it's sickness. For some of it, it's fears. For some of it, it's, it's uh, loneliness or depression. I want to tell you that God can move every mountain. And I want to give you just um, a quick conclusion, and then I want to pray the ironic blessing. So the new covenant is a superior covenant to the Mosaic covenant. As believers in Yeshua, we don't have to wait until we count Yom Kippur, hang on to our sins all year long so that they can finally be washed away. We can do it immediately. You know, we just... And unlike the high priest, think of this high priest who entered the Holy of Holies, and they thought, if there's any stain found on him, then God could kill him for coming too close, coming too close, and they were scared. But I want to tell you that that's not us because the Holy Spirit lives in each of us, and Jesus said he would never leave us nor forsake us. And finally, though good deeds don't save us, God does expect us to sanctify ourselves, to separate ourselves, and that we can live as a praise to his name and to, and to his works, that we can do what God has assigned us to do from before the beginning of the world. And now I want to say this blessing. <laughs> It says, Yivrechecha Adonai v'yishmerecha, Ya'er Adonai panav alecha v'chunecha, V'sah Adonai panav alecha v'sim lecha shalom. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and to be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Shalom. Thank you for listening today. Take a moment and ask Holy Spirit what he wants you to do with what you've learned. And remember, with God, all things are possible. So keep dreaming, keep praying, and simply obey. Because God is good. And he has good plans for you. You can subscribe to our blogs, learn about our speakers, and even hear from one of our team members how you can take part in transforming a city, your city with Christ. There's no time like the present. Visit ShekinahOnline.com. If this doesn't excite you, watch for our new and God-inspired product line, a newly released book by Stephanie Butler, more testimonies from our listeners like you, working to bring unity in cities across the world. If you feel led to support our podcast, you may do so on our Shekinah.com website. Or if you would like to support us monthly, there is a link labeled Listener Support on every podcast. Until next time, we thank you, we love you, have a blessed day.